Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the AEW Revolution Review. About bloody time. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by the Daddy Boys of What Culture. Michael Hubler, Michael Sidgwick, Hitch Rue. Everything that happened on the pay per view that happened about four days ago, <laughs> AEW Revolution. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts from, for daily wrestling podcasts where we not only review AEW Dynamite, but also AEW Rampage, Raw, Smack, and the show formerly known as NXT Dupay. Oh! oh! Pay-per-views, premium live events. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a round of the week completes with a bloody quiz, of course, on WrestleCulture. As I said, though, joined by Hamlet and Cedric to review AEW Revolution. Eventually, it's taken a while for us to get in a room together and have time to talk about this show, um, but lots to talk about here, Sitch. Power is back. <laughs> like that pamphlet? I do, yeah. It's a good four words together, isn't it? It is. It's lovely. I preferred it in the mid-2000s when it wasn't at all true, but <laughs> I really like it. Power is back. Uh, no, it's uh, one of the best pay-per-views I've ever seen. That's it. <laughs> I'll delve into why when we go match by match, but there isn't a chance to say this. Hot take, fewer matches mm. means that you can invest in each match to a far more heartfelt, impassioned Degree, even maybe not all out 2021. I think I loved literally everything and I was just amazed and awaiting what was all but rumored to happen. Maybe full gear, even the very best ones, with the possible exception of all out 2021, that just seemed to go on forever purely because I had like 10 or 11 on the main card. Mm. There was always one where you're like, oh, I forgot this was happening. Yeah. And it's bollocks because you have. Three months of these cycles, on average, median. And you're like, ah, even if we're not into most of the matches, AEW tends to build their big pay-per-views to a great degree. This mm -hmm. one was the exception. And there's a point I'll make on that imminently as well. There's always one where you're like, oh, Christ, I forgot this was happening. I wish it wasn't because I'm getting a bit tired. And it's bollocks because it's like I've been investing in this for like the last mm -hmm. two or three months. And it's unfair, but that is a formatting issue. It's an excess issue. This was just streamlined, sequenced to perfection. Not everything was amazing, but the stuff that wasn't, something very amazing was set to follow and none of it outstayed its welcome. And the result was always right. This is just such a breeze of a watch. I was awake, energized, 
every match. Nothing outstayed its welcome. Mm-hmm. It was all plotted together lovely. I will say that I had... This was so good that I kind of told myself off a bit, and I was thinking, was I just a bit of a grumpy, miserable bastard during the build? Because it wasn't quite that 2019 takeover where the in-ring action was sublime, but I honestly did not care about any of the storylines. I found them so formulaic and uninspiring. I felt a lot for the characters and not just the action, so I'm thinking they must have done something right, but I will... I will let that evidence settle over the next few weeks of the TV and wait for it to get great again. Because I honestly don't think the TV was that great. But maybe something like Christian Cage and Jack Perry, for example, they did the heavy lifting last year. Mm. And I was reminded of that. Um, But no, as a four-hour experience in isolation, I was loving this. One of the best pay-per-views I've ever seen. Yeah, I've had that experience over the last few days, looking back on it, of like, did this, did I think, obviously pay-per-view was great, but was it, so much better because I went in with such low expectations aside from yeah. the aside from the main event. Same here. Hamlet, you and I did the live stream for it. We did we did what went down, which was basically us just sort of running through the results effectively. Um you've had a few days to sort of let it all sink in. Have you gone back and watched it? And what did you make of the show overall? Yeah, I've watched it all back. I must say the second watch was different because I picked the matches I wanted to watch first again, as you do, and then I watched the rest for the benefit of this review. Um but some of my memories of the pacing. Uh, isolated mostly to the stream, but they're fully positive because, again, like we always use a caveat of the stream as a different experience, but I was like really tired. Like I was going into work already really tired and the AW pay-per-view experience can be quite daunting when you're tired, not least when there's a admittedly match I was really looking forward to, but a 60-minute match yeah. is probably going to, the bell's going to ring at like 4 a.m. UK time, typically. Um, so I can't say enough good things about the pacing. I would personally compare it to a takeover. Um, but it's trickier with AEW because with the takeover format, the show was shorter in runtime, so you didn't need to send a match out there to die. There was a, it was a more condensed version of the Ring of Honor gun, do whatever you want, can you top this formula? Yeah. Like, anyone was allowed to go out there, and if they could be the best, they would be the best. Takeover with that five-match structure was allow, like allowed for its talent to do that, and it was a competition. Right, who's going to have the best match? Um, over a four-hour runtime, which AEW has to do, these quarterly pay-per-views, it needs to satisfy the paying customer, you simply cannot do that. But where I thought this was a success as a show was that the matches that ultimately stuff had to die, right? Mm-hmm. But the the deaths were relatively mild and quiet, and I would argue that, like, there was only really one match that I would classify as a death on this entire card. There has to be. Nobody talks about Tess and Eddie Guerrero at WrestleMania 17. Like, it was this disaster but those matches have to exist. Mm. There's probably a couple more on that big card that I'm forgetting, but that's just one that springs to mind. And, you know, we'll just say it. Wardlow versus Samoa Joe was not a disaster. Just something has to be the piss break or the popcorn match or the go and buy in a T-shirt match, whatever it is, a breather even. Something has to be that. And I just think this is maybe... Everyone's saying it, so it's not a hot take. This has got to be um, a sign to Tony Khan to follow this model regardless of if your main event yeah. going 60 minutes or 10 minutes. Like, this has to be the model going forward because that's the one thing we can all disagree on individual matches, but universally everybody has said um, the viewing experience is so much better. And it used to piss me off when we were told that we couldn't complain about AEW pay-per-views going too long because that's a really important subjective viewer experience mm. and it did affect main events. Like, main events more than anything else were affected because often yeah. they were the most predictable matches on the card and it was going to rely solely on the quality of the talent 
And when you're too tired for a match that's predictable, it's potentially in real trouble, and it doesn't deserve that. There was an element of this show where I was reminded that AW, I don't, I don't, as somebody that watches this every week and we review it and critically analyze it, so of course we're going to be granular and forensic with Dynamite, I don't want AEW to allow itself to fall into the trap of knowing that a pay-per-view can rule based on talent. Forbidden Door kicked ass as well, and that run, up, like in the run-up on television, was pretty poor. I think those comparisons are fair. I think Revolution was better than Forbidden Door because it didn't have the advantage of the cross-promotional dream match feeling on the night. This was programs that existed within mm-hmm. AEW, um, but I don't want it to become the excuse and the norm. I don't want to be going into double or nothing with that kind of sludgy, uh, like, let's just get these programs out of the way because this roster's too, it's not too good to fail, but it's mostly it too good. pretty much is. It kind of is. Like, maybe it this is. pay-per-view proved that, yeah, it is too good to fail on a pay-per-view like this, but often TV felt like it mm. f- failed. So I don't I want to enjoy 48 weeks of the year. Yeah, I don't want Revolution's critical acclaim and success to justify the television that I've not really been enjoying the last, like, few weeks. Yeah, Sid said, Sid said exactly the same We briefly touched on it on the Raw preview on Monday and he said the exact same thing about that main event of getting there and being like, right, I've got to get up for this. I should, you know, I should be enjoying it. And you often did, obviously, with the talent that was involved in it. But the fact you had to sort of almost G yourself up after all this amount of time, I think it's a fair point. Obviously, Sige wrote a brilliant Ups and Downs article uh, about this show. You can check out right now at whatculture.com. And indeed, there's, I think the match we all agree was, say, the worst it's a different bar, obviously, for all this. The Wardlow match obviously feeds into tonight's AW Dynamite, which we will be previewing on another podcast a little bit later on today. Dabble babble. Um, <laughs> but, Sige, let's start at the beginning of the show. Ricky Starks versus Chris Jericho. I'm surprised to see this open. <laughs> Shut up, man. I knew but I'm it. more surprised by the result. I tweeted on the Friday that I will be more shocked than an NXT wrestler <laughs> failing to win a match with a signature move than I would be if this did not open, and it opened. There's a cynical take and the less correct take. <laughs> the cynical take is that Chris Jericho politicked to get the opening slot knowing that a crowd has simply revved up. The big shows here were excited. Any match gets over in the opening slot. People say it's like a pressure slot. I'm not sure. I think every, like, people, no, that's probably wrong. I think people say that there used to be a stigma of uh, opening the show. And jerking not the curtain. Jerking the curtain. No. no. It's like, it's the dream. And Chris Jericho is smart enough to get this. So he's either politicked or Tony Khan, when he's formatting this show, he basically wants the loudest sustained reaction for four straight hours. What's the best means of accomplishing that? Chris Jericho goes on first because people like to sing Judas. The crowd are already in a state of excitement. And if this happened halfway through, people might be aware of, ah, this is very, very cold. A cliched build. Flatters out. I don't care about this one. Jericho and or Khan knew this. Put this out first. Um... I'm assuming you're not going to recap because we'd be here forever. No, I'm assuming, yeah, most people have watched these shows. Yeah. Um, ultimately, it was about three and a quarter, three and a half star tier in terms of the action. I will say that the selling from Ricky Starks was really strong. Um, Chris Jericho, he knows when to do things as well as any wrestler. He's, he's a great, he's an industry titan, If in fact. But sometimes his work can be sloppy, but it doesn't matter because on an emotional level and the timing, he knows when to do the beats to get the most reactions. That spear to a cold break counter was fantastic because Starks, and this is a theme through the night, looked like he wanted to break him in half. He's got that flailing quality to his spear, 
where it's like it's kind of all or nothing intent rather than power because he's not a Goldberg or a Rhino, but he knows how to put everything behind it emotionally. And for him to have that sort of uncoordinated, if you will, approach to doing a spear and for Jericho to still nail him, just nail him, looked like he was going to spear him, but no, in fact, he looked like he got bloody concussed with those knees. That was a tremendous spot. About, if I'm being honest, four days removed, the only thing I really remember from the match, other than the block that led to the finish of the Judas effect. Look, this was uh, good to very good, but hot, and it was unfussy. It got out the way in time. The right man won. Let's everyone move on. <laughs> yes. I am damning it with not the best kind of praise, but again, this worked holistically with the rest of the show. Uh, you and I said at the time, everybody else, I mean, Guevara coming out here, the JS are banned from ringside, and then immediately took back that take because of the way that Action Andre, in your words, trucked him. I like Action Andre's best moment, and I include the time he pinned Chris Jericho, <laughs> was spearing Sammy Guevara at Revolution. Uh, this doesn't stand up. To Sidgwick's point about how it fitted on, how it fit perfectly on the night, I'll, I'll say this on second watch, like, but nobody will ever have a second watch. That's of this, a so thing. it's absolutely fine. This didn't stand up. This match was not good enough to justify the fact that it had already happened eight weeks ago and Starks was more over then than he was here. They have not, in my opinion, when you like, and if you gauge the reactions and maybe what your current perception of Ricky Starks is, got Ricky Starks back. Like the bare minimum, if you have him beat Jericho, then have an eight week cycle. If it's going to be in the bell curve or whatever it is, is to get him at least, if the line is there where Ricky Starks is, you've at least got to get him in line with that line eight weeks later. And then Jericho can say, like, at his worst, you know what, I didn't get him hotter, but I didn't cool him down. You watch this back, I think he has cooled him down. Like, the fans were not as with Ricky Starks as they needed to be for what was supposedly this long odyssey that he was on to get this long-awaited revenge. The taped ribs uh, were used and utilised within the match, but it kind of reminded you that they'd built in this, like, really fake-feeling attack on Wednesday just to be able to send the guy out there with one slither of, like, rib tape to try and add some heft to it because they just did not... They didn't work it in a way. It'd be one thing if he'd been, like, attacking the ribs for the entire duration because he was trying to say, like, Starks is this young guy, so I'm going to break him down and show that I've got a better engine than him. But this was just a three days out, we best deck him, you know? Yeah. And then the Sammy Guevara thing is going underreported as a pretty big failing of the booking. Like, that's if that spear wasn't awesome, like, what the hell's going on there? Like, why have you advertised this for him to just do it anyway? It's just in, in KFC. Should have been DQ'd on site. On site. Like the and I the, I really like the Judas effect block, but again it's kind of happened in a match that was as forgettable as the bulk of the program, and I think it's done Starks in the favor. He lost to MJF, and we said, right AW, don't AW him here, put him back on television next week because we're all still with him regardless. Don't just have him disappear for six weeks. That might have been better than this feud. That's what hindsight. I said before as well. Just, I, it was just depressing that. that like depressing. It was one of those where on the night woke up. You've paid for it, or you've invested, or you've woke up at stupid o'clock, so you figure, you know what, get up for it, don't be a miserable bastard for once in your miserable life, Sidgwick. I enjoyed <laughs> it as, ah, that was quite hot, quite good, fans are into it, set the tone, it added to the overall experience. But you got the duality of Jericho, because, oh my God, the amount of time. He'd gone to the lengths of finishing off Avalon with the codebreaker, right, with the idea being, all right, okay, he's won a match with that. I guess I'll bite on the near fall if it's timed well enough, inserted into the part of the match where it should be against Starks. If he had just, boom, nailed him, cold breaker, 
one, two. Oh, I would have really like my heart would have like came out of my mouth. But he crawled over him. Like that took about five seconds. It's like it's only the code breaker, Jericho. <laughs> if it's the Judas effect, yeah, you, you only allowed one guy to kick out of that. If it's the Judas effect, I would still be. Oh, one, two, ah. Oh. It's not the code breaker. Everyone's kicked out of the code breaker. <laughs> what are you protecting that for, Chris? Uh, one match that we didn't really get a lot of chance to sort of properly preview, Sid, and get your thoughts on it was the final burial. Because uh, we didn't know what it was. We didn't know. I, I think when we, we previewed it, it was like maybe a no-holds-barred match on Wikipedia. It wasn't really confirmed. It was a fight. I saw people saying it was going to be a buried alive match. It all changed all over the over uh, Wikipedia for the days leading up to it. But in the end, it was basically just a casket match. But what a casket match this was. Uh, oh, my God. Oh my god! This is absolutely incredible, and I think I watched it twice. It's even better on a second mm -hmm. watch. Really? And I think this will, in a just world, live on as this kind of a masterpiece. I think people will have fond memories of it because they just nailed everything. It had this iconic ending. It was a great match. It was like a flex almost of like this is the best casket match you'll ever see in your <laughs> yeah. entire life. Undertaker, you wanker! So I think people it will have a legacy and it will be remembered. But I think people will go back and watch this and think, you know what, this was an even better bit of business than people thought at the time. And I was shocked. I don't know what's happened here because, yes, they did the grave thing. They've been talking about Christian's dead dad who raised a piece of for months. They did a pretty terrible job of telling you it wasn't actually the plan, which is bad promotion. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, they've promoted it poorly because they said a fight on Dynamite. That was it, a fight. Yeah. And I think because... The casket match is such a silly idea and has been a historically terrible gimmick match that no one ever would have made the connection until it was told to you. And then on social media, and again, this could have just been Jeff Jones dropping a bollock, or the graphic design team just inventing No Holds Barred. But on the AEW official Twitter account, they said No Holds Barred. So, oh, a bit weird when you're doing Texas Death. And then on Rampage, it was clarified that it's the final burial. And then without them seeing it, you were like, oh, it's a casket match then. Or buried alive. Or buried alive. Which is, like, which is cartoon. Like, it works in very, very... Well, it worked once because everything worked with Mankind in The Undertaker yes. in 1996. It worked once. That's, mm -hmm. the end, that's the end of my sentence. So I was confused and trepidatious. Yeah. Because I just thought, why are they doing one or two of the worst gimmick matches? <laughs> why did it take them this long to arrive at? Why, when this match has been built since Double or Nothing 2021, are they arriving seemingly 48 hours later at one of two of the worst gimmick matches ever? So I was just, I couldn't get excited for it on that basis. This must have been planned because of the dead dad raised a piece of sh and the burial response. But the marketing must have just in the promotions bad because obviously they've gone to the effort of doing the props. There's quite an elaborate stunt. So regardless, they didn't do a good job of promoting it. My God, they did a five-star job. It wasn't a five-star match. It wasn't that far away, but they did a five-star job of the entire end-to-end -end presentation. Christian Cage is like unbelievable. Like, absolutely unbelievable. The turtleneck here <laughs> yeah, he was just... On a note on the turtleneck gear, right? Me and Hamlet are very adamant about this. It's not just something pretty. Like, gear can be a character choice. It can tell a story in and of itself. And we both go back to Bret Hart, Survivor Series, 1993, with his beautiful buttocks. Oh, my God. Decides to wear the same 
sort of what's it called? It's Olympic like, singlet. Yeah, a singlet. Uh, a singlet. Yeah. He goes for a singlet to convey to Owen Hart. I'm on your team. Um, I'm not the star of this team. We're in it together, but it was still pink. It still had to stand out, and that was that spoke beautifully about the entire dynamic and the thrust of the story. Christian Cage wearing a sleeveless turtleneck <laughs> sweater got the tone perfect mm. because he's still an arsehole. This turtleneck is a supervillain cliche, and yet he was detestable and entertaining. And this match, the tone of it was special, was masterpiece adjacent. There was a casket there and soil, mm. and it was silly. And he got sent to hell after he lost. <laughs> and yet I believe the animosity and the hatred and just the violence of it all, just unbelievable. Absolutely great. Christian Cage, we know as a master craftsman, how he can build these matches. Now one spot flows together. He just wrestled like a rat. Just yeah. like a rat. He didn't even hit the unprettier or even attempt the unprettier. He was just underneath but not a baby face. He was literally scurrying and not wrestling. He was scurrying like the rat that he is. Like the soil bit was fantastic. The bit where the Jungle Boy, who was paying off the arm injury, was going to stamp on it. He just swept his leg. Just a great opportunist. Maybe the best opportunist in all of professional wrestling <laughs> was Christian Cage in this match. The suspense was unbelievable. The schlock was sports entertainment done better than the Fed. I'm sorry. And the violence of that finish was earned and pretty gruesome. And what I love about him getting sent to hell is that it's preposterous. What if Jungle Boy lost? Mm. He shouldn't go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> but it would have anyway. So it was silly. And I'm usually very pedantic about this sort of thing. But it was just everything it needed to be. It was, in its own impossible context, total perfection. So nearly... Two years, effectively, building this match, yeah? Yeah, 18 yeah. months. The fact that Christian Cage, about 10 minutes into this match, tried to beg off. Like, hey, 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 yeah. whoa, whoa. And then obviously did the yeah. dirt or the shovel or whatever it was. I can't remember exactly. And I was like, what do you think Jack's just going to be like? Oh, you know what? Fair enough. Yeah. You know, it's only been a year and a half of my life, this. Love this live. Loved it even more on the second. Like, the second one's better. Adored this match. Um, I, this was a, just a series of flexes, a series of different and amazing flexes from Christian as a as a goddamn wrestler's wrestler, and I know that has all sorts of connotations, some good, some bad. Randy but, Orton, yeah, <laughs> but like it's weird. AW needs a Christian in the room more than it gets sometimes. I think that's evident, like in, within it, like throughout its product. And then you get a Christian in the room and that's what, and this is the outcome you get, right? Because too often there's a Chris Jericho in the room. And that's the first point I want to make is that I didn't really consider this when we were watching live, but I watched these two matches back to back on my rewatch and Christ, the contrast and the comparison of what is effectively the same story. An industry veteran is about to put over and theoretically elevate one of AEW's young guns and try and get them to the next level. And we, of all different times, felt that Jungle Boy was dead in the water. Jack mm -hmm. Perry was dead in the water. The Christian injury wasn't helpful, but the stop-start nature of this feud, like 21 months or two years, or it doesn't tell the exact story, does it? Because that leaves big gaps mm. of, you know, where we just have to... 22 months, 20, 22 months where, like, but there's been various injuries and things like that. Um, but this made it feel like it had been... 
going on the same eight weeks as Chris Jericho versus Ricky Starks, and it had to be paid off tonight. And Christian ran like your always like your football analogies, Sitch. Like the last twenty-one months have been Christian going one 0 up, and he put eleven men behind the ball on the night. Yeah, like that he didn't do. A, he didn't make a single offensive maneuver in this match because. Well, because he was spooked by his inevitable doom of this grave that was on the top of the it's stage. deserved fate. Yeah, and then when he ran away, oh God, I ran towards the grave. This was less than ideal. That's how they arrive up at the top of the ramp is by Christian just trying to run away. You know, we always knew the concerto was going to be the poetic ending to all of this, but it played out perfectly nonetheless. They really did the work with the concerto. You know, the, the six-man back at... Full gear 21. Thank you very much. was the night that like the Jungle Boy became a man, but he couldn't be announced as such until we got to this point mm-hmm. here because he's failed in the past to do it. And... Like I, just, I couldn't have loved Christian's performance more in this, but it never took away from how this was a night to make Jack Perry, just in the same way that Ricky Starks needs another go at it. Jungle Boy doesn't, and it made me completely reconsider the heft and the importance of the fact that he also... We will reflect on this feud and remember, obviously, the, them as a team, the uh, match against Adam Cole and the Young Bucks. You don't sound like a sore loser, Jack. You just sound like a loser. <laughs> the promos, how, like, already in the, in my mind, the... Uh, Jungle Boy Luchasaurus cage match has been elevated in status and importance because I'll remember this and the last flex and a very important one two years after the Exploding Bar by Death Eye match we have the best AW prop moment ever ever this has not been a good company for props thus far that coffin and could this be some foreshadowing if Christian isn't done because this was a hell of a like I was saying to Sidge on another pod I think this felt like a, a write off but you think it's contractually not, there's just not. too much time left on the deal the Raw review I think we're talking about yeah this was a coffin drop like, are we seeing the next program for Christian? Because slapping about Darby Allen is funny to think about. Yeah, but like, do you know, like that that drop, like there it is. That's one of my takeaway memories from this pay per view. Yeah, is that coffin? Like an incredible bit of prop work. What I love about this, right, is that AEW at its very best makes me reach for meaning in it. Like, I don't care about sound like an earnest nerd about this. Like, fucking great art. Okay, great art invites you to project meaning onto it because it's touched you in such a Mm. way that you want it to mean the world to you. So the idea that Christian Cage has gone into his death, (laughs) a coffin, and unlike every other waking soul, there's no cleansing of him in purgatory because he's simply too much of a dirty rat to just go straight to hell. Yeah. <laughs> straight, instant judgment. Right, oh, hell, hell. Hell for him. <laughs> Get on with it. It's not a prop. Like, if Jack Perry goes in the coffin, it just stays there. Yeah, yeah. Christian is being dragged. Straight to hell. There's <laughs> absolutely no cleansing that soul in purgatory. He goes straight to hell. That's how dirty much of a rat he is. It's just <laughs> mint. Uh, then it was the World Trios Championship. watch it again. On the line. Yeah, it's great, man. Uh, the Elite defending against the host of Blood. Right decision for you depending on how it plays out, mm. I think that in an ideal world, had they not been suspended, um, that the this was always going to be the destination, but the elite really would have done a much better job of really trying to elevate these titles in importance from all out all the way to revolution. Mm. Things went awry. Maybe these trios titles will just become fun party match, and they won't have the same level of narrative importance. So maybe they they were meant to mean more, and it was like, right, House of Black, Malachi, you can tell great stories, you think, so go on, here's the mantle, you take it now, you've got a really prestigious prize, go and take it. Didn't really transpire like that, but ultimately we are where we are, and I will let the rest of all the narratives play out. That is a theme of my, like, sort of takeaway. 
from all of this show. This match is unbelievable as well. Like, I was giddy watching this. Best match of the night up until we got to the main event, basically. I would say so, yeah. Um, that's the joy of this show. Like, again, you've got an absolute technical classic flooded with emotion in the main event. You've got this state-of-the-art exhilaration. You've got a fun sports entertainment spectacle that is pretty much borderline genius, we think, with the casket match. Then you've got Texas Death, which is what pro wrestling violence is meant to look like. The range of the show is unbelievable. So I can understand people having literally four different matches, and people are talking about the main event as an all-timer, and that's how strong and, like, that eclectic the show was. Kenny Omega and Malachi Black please do a singles match. Mm. Their work was unbelievable. Like, when you watch a great martial arts sequence in a movie, it's not unlike wrestling. I don't want to sound like one of those, hmm, you know what, uh, get real wrestling vibes from this, when it's, <laughs> when it's just a story between good and evil. But the great martial arts sequences are not um, remembered for the big punch at the end or the big kick. It's the spaces between. Mm. It's ducking when you're going to get your teeth knocked out or you're going to get concussed. And there was a genuine nice bit of, uh, I don't even like MMA, so you might be able to to learn me. <laughs> That'll learn you. <laughs> the bit where Kenny Omega just did this nice defensive move against that Malachi Black kick. The shot, yeah, the the knee block. Sort yeah, of thing. yeah, so that was great. That'll break your shin bone, that will. <laughs> so that was very good. And the Black Mass, Kenny Omega's physical timing when he's on offense and defense is just unparalleled in, in history. I immediately thought of you. Yeah. You're normally a, a close barrier rule, but it applies here. If you're going to hit something that the opponent is going to duck or reverse, still look like you're going to hit. I'm, I've got a lot of latitude towards like spots and selling and stuff, but that sticks in my crawl. My goodness, Kenny Omega's physical timing. It's V-trigger. I don't know how he doesn't break people's eye sockets, orbital <laughs> bones. And on defense as well. Like, the last thing Julia Hart needs after a Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, yeah, the shrug. I forgot about that. That yeah. duck from the spin kick. was yeah. just unbelievable. He's going to get his head knocked off if he's a nanosecond late. Their sequence is absolutely out of this world. Then it reaches this incredible crescendo. And I put it in the review. There's going to be a lot of repeated takes because, you know, you can have two opinions. Do Fixer versus Blood Generation ROH Supercard 2006 is a match so f***ing amazing <laughs> thought about that the fans in attendance literally chant, please don't stop, when they sense that the finish is finally coming. Oh, oh, eh. This is too good. Please <laughs> do not stop. The Elite have took that impossible match and went, should we just do that all the time? <laughs> yes, they did. Like, Kenny Omega again. He's so good at the things that people pretend he isn't that I don't know if he's just flexing at this point or if he's just the best wrestler of all time. I think maybe a bit of both. The way he wrestled Brody King, it's like he didn't even snapdragon him once because he can't because he's massive. Like Kenny Omega is one of the most realistic storytellers in professional wrestling history. And just because he doesn't tediously crawl around the mat like Dory Funk Jr., like he can be exciting <clears throat> and realistic at the exact same time. Didn't even start dragging him. Like, he made a fool of himself trying to do the one-winged angel. Like, he did such an incredible job of making Brody King feel like this skyscraper of a horror. Like, he made a tit of himself to put him over. Like, he made himself look like he'd made a very, very silly mistake by daring to even try in one-winged angel, Brody King. And Brody King wrestled like a monster. 
that spot as well where Brody King splattered him when he sat in a chair against the guardrail. Kenny Omega's selling of that was unbelievable. And I'm taught I'm isolating all of these incredible moments before you get to the all action sequences where it's bang, 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 bang. This match was awesome before all of that. The finish speaks for itself. If you go back and watch it a second time, he's miles away. So that ruins it a little bit. But because they swept you up in this exhilaration where the House of Black looks scarier than they ever have because the elite are geniuses at this. And there was even levity as well because it was Kenny Omega shrugging at that spot, which is tremendous. Um, the House of Black look legitimized. The elite deserves so much more respect and they are one of the most acclaimed acts of all time in some circles. I still contend they deserve so much more respect. I'm glad they've lost the belts because they can enter divisions where they get respect. Because the trios gets none because it doesn't really deserve any, I don't think. Trios wrestling is absolutely fantastic, but it exists just for the fun of itself. Like, the House of Black winning the belts is perfect because I think the stories are absolutely terrible. I think they're rotten storytellers. Maybe it's just Malachi Black exclusively, but I think they're rotten storytellers as a gimmick. But incredible The ones. presentation of that act on that night <sighs> was incredible. Yeah. Like, their matches, we say this all the time about the House of Black, so it's not like a new take or anything, but this was the best example of it. Uh, the three of them should just only appear for their matches. Like, if you want 20 or 30 seconds for Malachi Black's indulgence and to make him feel like, as an artist, he's been given what he needs to express himself, then just only do video packages and send them out there to have the matches because the matches always, always, always kick ass. And sometimes your feeling towards them, if you're not predisposed to enjoying the spooky nonsense, is undone a little bit. Them having the trios belts is perfect because I wanted story out of the elite and I was never getting it. I want none from these guys and I'm just going to get the kick-ass matches. Kenny Omega, I think I had this feeling 24 hours after Sidgwick did because it was on being the elite for me. And it's up next. For anybody that hasn't seen it, making good of that kind of rubbish attack from the House of Black on the elite. Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks filmed a bit for being the elite where, like, he was going to go out. He'd been given 10 minutes of TV time to give this big message as a way to, like, make it funny that they'd been decked before he could even say a word. And a little hint that they are going to do more story stuff. In this the is it. Like, I, was, I got that feeling. I was like, oh, Kenny Omega's back. And, like, I, th- I sense that you maybe felt it in this match, oh, specifically God. in defeat. In defeat, because that, like, the, the trio's about were feeling like a bit of an albatross, certainly in the conversation around the elite, especially. So that's done and dusted now um and yeah the the match was exactly as great as i expected it to be it was we, better than that. you don't wish to understate its quality when mm. when saying that uh going back to production trouble and the house of black <laughs> I, th- I think it was kind of stupid to have whoever's kid that was in the ring with them because you shouldn't be humanizing your monsters and especially not then after the fact put the spotlight down and lift it back up before they got out of the ring that's amateur stuff that man it's like a pay-per-view and you've just belted these monsters and then in two separate ways, reduced their monster aura. Like, tighten up. Two more things. I'm sorry. It's Kenny Omega. His facial expressions when he was sat decked on the canvas in contrast to Malachi Black smiling, being sinister, in perfect control of his body with that pose. Like, Kenny Omega's just a genius at this. He's an absolute genius at this. There was another point I wanted to make as well. There was a takedown. I'm going to sound ignorant because I really don't get martial arts or the Hmm. technique behind it or MMA. There was like an MMA or martial arts style takedown of Kenny Omega when like Malachi Black seemed to like roll under him and then over him at the same time. I don't know how they did this. I can't even describe it. I want that singles match. 
I need that singles match. Do it in Manitoba, Winnipeg. I hope the Young Bucks taught the trios that are going to fight the House of Black now how to work Brody King because they couldn't have done more to like present just how dangerous he is. The House of Black are dangerous as a United front, but Brody King on his own is the threat. Mm. And you you've got to do your absolute best to bring him down to a knee. And I just thought they played that so well. They've shown you, they've shown the rest of the division what you need to see when you're working against Brody King. And I really like that. And I said this decision in the office. I'm not frightened of the House of Black when they're on Dynamite doing their stupid promos. They're losers. <laughs> I'm frightened of them when they stand around a fallen opponent who has got no defense against them because they're giant ass-kicking machines. In-ring storytelling is tremendous. Yeah. Mm. A, a win for good in-ring storytelling. Mm. You don't need bollocks. Yeah. Don't need it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's move on to the AW Women's World Championship three-way. Jamie Hayter versus Soraya versus Ruby Soho. Uh, Jamie Hayter retains... Uh, arguably more about the post-match here. Sitch. Yeah, I didn't really watch this as a match because I wasn't emotionally invested in it because I don't think the story's particularly good and it was the most predictable match in the history of AEW on pay-per-view and <laughs> that's not a good thing because mostly for good reasons, AEW pay-per-views are predictable. You knew Ruby Soho was going to lose. You just knew it was a formality. I watched the match awaiting that formality to unfold. So I was watching for different... I was just watching for other moves good. And this is exciting. And it was very a superficial viewing experience for me on that basis. But Soraya looked better than I thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she took a wicked Saito suplex off Ruby Soho. So at the very least, I watched this thing. And, you know, there's enough action in it. It's flowing nicely enough to keep me invested. Um, Soraya's taking a kick in here, which I thought Soraya versus Jamie Hayter, that's going to happen eventually. And I have to know that's good, and this has to act as a good preview of that. And I know that Soraya's willing to take a bit of a pounding, so it could be good. Um, the post-match was silly. On one level, I was generous because I was sick of the inner conflict from Ruby Soho. Sick of it. And at least now, there are two sides, and they can just go to war, and they don't have to do this melodramatic nonsense. She should have dwelled upon it, and then realized, over days or weeks, preferably days, I know what, I can't beat them, so let's join them. She was kicking seven bells out of Soraya. Or was she? Yeah. People have said, uh, maybe she wasn't. I think that's an indictment of the match because no one could really remember how much she was targeting her or not. Either way, you don't come to that 
Can't beat him joining realization within what ten seconds. <laughs> the way it was blocked and framed made it feel like premeditated. So it's like, well, why didn't you just gang up to win? I disagree, actually. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I like. I (laughs) disagree. She in the build had been and it like on her entrance jacket that she had um, like outsiders, homegrowns, both crossed out, and then championship underneath, like stitched in. Right up until the finish, when she lost, her goal was to win the title. She was genuine to the very end, and when that failed, she very quickly surveyed the situation and thought, "I'm going to go with them." Like, I thought that played out was completely believable. Wilborn spotted something I identified on the screen that she'd had the green streak in her hair as a bit of, like... And then Wilborn said, oh, but look, she's got the plaid shirt around, like what Britt Baker wears. Yeah. And that was a nice, like... That was something in the comments, by the way. I didn't spot that. I'm not that smart. But I, I read it out, so I'll take, nice I'll take the credit for that. Give credit to the comment. Good, good read. Like, <laughs> I, I thought that was quite nice, again, that she's, like, she's still not committing to one side or the other, but... There's no honour among these thieves, and they'll take the opportunity to strengthen their numbers. And Ruby Soho was suddenly found a situation. I've lost. In this wins and losses matter promotion, I'm as far away from that woman's title as I'm ever going to be, unless I get on side with these two. And she did it. And there was no better sales pitch for joining that crew than Tony Storm actually oh. destroying that cameraman. Best spot, oh best spot of the match was from a wrestler that wasn't even in it. God, I miss it's Tony so Storm good. going out there and kicking ass in title matches. Because I get the motivation, it was still a bit rushed for me. I'm also more interested, and I think this is not just me, in the storyline than I was going into the pay-per-view. Because people have started, with Ruby Soho joining, people have started lining up the ranks for prospective blood and guts. I've seen people fantasy booking a... Moment of mutual respect between Britt Baker and Thunder Rosa because at this point you could line the babyface side up to all be current or former world champions. Where does Jade Cargill stand in it? Like, I do think there's more meat to this than there was going in. And to your point about Soraya, like, obviously her best match by a mile. Mm. But I've said that twice as well. Maybe she's just shaking the rust off. And I want to believe there's more to it at the end of it. The three-way turned out to be the best option as well. I wouldn't have said that going in. Still felt like they were procrastinating to me. Haters rain doesn't feel as good as it should do. No. Mm. This is yet another, like, oh, my God, the build to the person ascending is absolutely incredible. Oh, they've reached the peak. Uh, I care less than I yeah. do. Like, we're, we're kind of living through yet another one of those. Shout out to Ruby Soho for that spot where she hit the barricade, though, and you and I thought, oh, cool, she's got no teeth left. Unbelievable sell of that. Like, she threw her face into that, and I don't know. That was good sleight of hand, because I don't know how she hosted herself on behind yeah. the barricade to yeah. get away with that one. Uh, right, let's move on to... Texas death between Hangman Adam Page and John Moxley. I make that noise because watching the match was visceral enough in and of itself. And then I foolishly made the decision to go on squared circle in the immediate aftermath of this show, Sige. Uh, That's a mistake at the best of times. Granted, yeah. <laughs> and saw the uh, fan photo of the chair. Oh, of my God. Oh, my God. Sorry, I need to press it four times, five times to the trios. Oh, my God. 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 That sounds like Renee Paquette after she's received an email from John Moxley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if she's in the mood for it. The, uh... Yeah, the chair with Hangman Page's hair still hanging off it. Uh, well, I should say, it was such a wild, brutal affair. Me and Hamlet even forgot to mention the fact that one of them got stuck. Well, that they got a fork involved and stabbed him in the forehead. We didn't even mention that because of how horrific this was with bricks and chains and all that. This was awesome. I might have enjoyed their third TV match a bit more than this, if I'm being honest. I had this at like the four and a half star level, but 
people, like a lot of people thought this was five. Like this was a five-star match for a lot of people. I wasn't quite there for me, but it was still awesome. It was still what pro wrestling violence should look like. It was still paced so well. There were moments where, and I love this as well, it's just the thought that goes into this goddamn promotion when it's firing on all cylinders where sometimes they stood up because a chair just happened to be there and it was cleverly placed because they arranged this all brilliantly. And through dumb luck, it was just there to stand on. So they're prolonging the match, they're intensifying the violence, but they're surviving it not because they're just that hard, but because they've wonderfully arranged all the the set basically for cinema <laughs> um to make it less contrived and less like they're undermining the violence and just no selling it and getting back up but because oh god that chair if it wasn't there I could not stand on my own two feet um this was the fork spot was incredible the way in which the violence escalated like the barbed wire being the blood gusher immediately establishing the tone was great. When I saw the bricks, like my oh, my arse dropped. <laughs> like it dropped. Like, I oh, don't do that. When they got upturned, mm. they, they did such a good job of hinting at the worst kind of violence and merely doing some really disgusting stuff. <laughs> like the power bomb off the top turnbuckle through the ch- back-to-back chairs. Mm-hmm. I was like, don't. You'll paralyze them. Weird that, wasn't it? Because you didn't want to watch it happen. And then, obviously, it's wrestling, so you kind of do. And then Moxley slides off one of the chairs rather than hit in the middle, and you're sort of relieved for him. I think that was the plan. Yeah, I, I thought that was yeah. quite artful, That like because it is the suplex when Adam Cole takes it is bad enough, isn't it? Yeah. But the powerbomb would have been even more intense. See, Moxley's taken a Lance Archer chokeslam bump onto that, but a top rope one I've never seen, and that was incredible. And I loved the finish as well. Hangman Page said on the go-home Dynamite, I don't really like violence, but I've found myself in a situation where I have to prove my manhood. And if it's this domain, it's this one. I've been challenged by John Moxley. I watched for a promo I'm about to write, the very first promo that started all of this off. And it's weird how this was never the direction. It pivoted because of the real-life concussion Hangman Page suffered in that match. But the first promo that set up the cursed first match actually feeds into the end. Because John Moxley was saying, are oh, you more of a boy than a man? Like, you're not the same kind of guy I am. You'll crumble under the pressure. You just can't do what I do. And this entire time, Hangman Page, who's got this pretty complex relationship with masculinity, has just decided, I don't like violence, but I'm in this domain now. This is how I have to prove myself. And John Moxley was cosplaying as Bruiser Brody and just glorifying it and Hangman Page has taught him a goddamn lesson and not to be so toxic. And I'm going to have to choke you to fucking death because the opportunity has presented itself to me. If you look at who introduced all of the weaponry and when Hangman Page was the actual hero of this piece, he used violence because it was a necessity, not because he loved or glorified it. Yeah, John Moxley very subtly, if indeed the Blackpool Combat Club are going heel or if he's got a choice to make about that direction, he subtly turned himself enough heel for it to be believable if he switches with them in this match. And somebody had to be, it's a death match, they're both doing awful things to each other, but somebody's got to take that villainous role and I do think that was Moxley and it was really well done. I like this a lot, I'm not as into death match stuff, but there were, and to that point, uh, like I think Barbara is massively overrated. And I think AEW has typically never done that good a job with it. 
uh, I would maintain that to be the case here. Like his, his hair was stuck to it, it ruled. Aye, but then he wrapped himself in it and he wrapped the fist in it, and I think that's garbage. That's rubbish. It's thick. There was more. It was a more to me. It was a more like awesome moment when the camera, really great use that corner camera, mm. shot the fingernails going up Paige's back and then vice versa. Then wrapping yourself in barbed wire to do a moonsault. That's dumb shit. Like, do something else. Like, if you're that hard, do something else. Oh, I don't like violence. I'm going to cut myself to ribbons just to maybe, like, slightly graze him. Thick. Like, and, I, like, death matches have that, though. Like, you can, I think they can, you can sort of get a bit too indulgent. Like, the brick stuff is stupid. It's pretty stupid. You kill a man with a brick. You hit him once in the, the death head. Death match. It's a, yeah, well, all right. But, like, shoot death. He's got to die. <laughs> He's got to die out there for that to make any sense at all. But... You can allow it in the right context. And I would say, for example, the stomp was the right context. Very opportunistic. Oh, run the ropes and it, my old bits, that's me. Brilliant. That's like a really nice bit of, uh, I don't know, like in, what would be the description of this? Like in match sort of ingenuity from John Moxley to see an opportunity rather than like, he set all of the weapons up as like Cedric points out, because he's a bit more villainous than Paige, but he wasn't just necessarily using them straight away. It was things that they were going back to later on. Um, I also think, uh, this this was like a really hot ass match, and I could see why people would have this as like their match of the night, even if it wasn't mine personally. I also think this match was an indictment of Hangman Page's entire AEW title reign because in this program with John Moxley, Hangman Page has risen th- as like overcome adversity and battle, and comes out of this program. He's not won it; it's two apiece. But he felt like the winner, and he's walked away like the hero, mm. and he feels to me hotter a commodity for AEW than he did for almost the duration of his title reign, which says to me that he wasn't the guy to carry the title because he wasn't necessarily the guy to carry the men. Moxley has elevated him to a level he wasn't at before. Personally, that's how I like. Or he just sunk solo after losing the title. That It took him a long time to get back up. He's in a different place as a result of this program. I want to take the belt off MJF. Yeah. yeah. This feels like such a success on those mm. terms for where Paige was at to where he is now. Well, one more, sorry, one more very quick thing. I loved how Mox tapped immediately. I think the temptation might have been, I'm a badass, I'll pass out. Like, no, he sold that is how it should have been sold. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I was going to say, oh, yeah, uh, Hangman Page is going to, we're going to hear from Hangman Page on Dynamite tonight, so we'll uh, talk a little bit about that on the preview a little bit later on today. And, yeah, I'm not really a deathmatch guy. I think light tubes are the worst thing that's ever been introduced in wrestling, in my opinion. But a bit like, I was saying this to, the, to, him, to him on the stream, one of my most visceral wrestling moments isn't, you know, broken glass or uh, or barbed wire or anything like that. It was Kingston using yeah. the, the alcohol gel and that bit where he's, it's sweat and blood soaked and you just see the tracks being drawn on the back was just, it went through me. And uh, yeah, like you say, hell of a way to, to reestablish Hangman Page. Uh, let's talk about the TNT Championship match, even though that right now there might not be a TNT Championship. Um uh, Wardlow defeating Samoa Joe uh, by technical submission. Um, we talked about this on the, the the what went down, Sige. Something had to follow the death match, and it's a tough spot, isn't it? Uh, aye. It was weird. If it wasn't for Jericho, maybe being Jericho, we can't say one way or the other. This should have opened. This should have opened. You need to give something a chance, don't you? You need to give something yeah. a chance. Jericho is forever established now. He's reached his ceiling. Wardlow hasn't and he ain't going to reach it being slotted here. This should have opened. I've realized it's a big floor of the show because Jericho's Jericho. He can cut a promo and be really funny in two weeks and remind you that he's Jericho. He's forever over. 
Wardlow could have really done with that crowning moment of the hot crowd and emerging as a star. This was a really bad night for him. The match wasn't bad at all. There was elements of it that I actively enjoyed. It's about three stars. Um, the finish was anticlimactic because it didn't build the drama. Mm. And uh, I don't think the application of the Kokina clutch was particularly good either. He's, he's tried this before, Wardlow, where he's not the best MMA guy, but he might like it, so he does it, and I think he should steer away from that. But it just felt like all kinds of an afterthought here. He's an afterthought on the Revolution card. He's an afterthought um, to the exponentially better Darby Allen versus Samoa Joe feud. And this would have stood a chance had it opened the show of, oh, Wardlow's cool, people like him, the match was really cool, and he's won, and we're, we're in for a great night. Did not go that way. Yeah, bad night for Wardlow. Not for Samoa Joe, because obviously he's kind of moving on to his own stuff. And I think that, I found that quite difficult. I found the reality quite difficult to escape to get lost in the cafe was it like Samojo's got the TV title in Ring of Honor. Ring of Honor's springing to life now and it's pay-per-view season for them and Joe's got his Joe's got his business really. So here he is to do business for Wardlow, but it felt like it wasn't really Wardlow's evening. This wasn't the match that anybody wanted. To your point there, Sage, about like Wardlow being an afterthought, he was an afterthought before he won the belt because most people are forecasting Hobbs to take it from him. Yeah, I know. So yeah. that's like the worst way to go into a match. He has to turn heel. He does have to, he has to turn heel. Like, if that choice of gear wasn't heel turn enough, like, what was he doing? Changing his gear to Taz's singlet. Like, I, like small detail, but a, if you watch it back, a big one, he doesn't look as big. Like, the gear and television and cameras have a weird way. He doesn't way. look as distinct, especially no. without the hair or anything like uh -huh. that. Which, again, for narrative, we all put that over, yeah. about how it was, like, useful for this feud. But he went away, so this feud cooled, and a massively, massively hotter one stepped immediately into its place. So this never stood, uh, yeah, this never stood a chance unless it was given one, and it wasn't. And then you think, well, you were smart enough to take the face of the revolution uh, ladder match off the card and put it on dynamite. Maybe you should have done that with this too. Maybe, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but maybe like find something else that might have fit in this slot instead. Because there was still a way for this match. Like in hindsight, and we'd have criticised it for being out oh, there. The, I don't think they've got that great chemistry as well. They've not. They've, they've just no. not. They don't have. They don't have terrible matches, but they have quite boring ones. And boring's a disaster in AEW. Yeah, because there's too much of a range. Uh, we discussed bad placement on the card. I think we all agree. Perfect placement for the uh, four-way tag match for the world tag team titles. Next, it was the Guns, the Acclaimed, Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett, Triple J, of course, uh, and Orange Cassidy and Dan Housen fighting for the tag titles. I've gone to you for most of these, Sige, first. I have to go to Hamlet first on Jeff this Jarrett. one yeah. because it's Jeff Jarrett and you've tweeted this, but there's a moment that will live with you forever in this match. Oh, my God. Jeff Jarrett celebrating winning the belts before he's even won them. I oh, smashed the button. Oh, my God. This, like, sort of arms out. Hey, yeah, I'm the tag team champion and he's not even done the lateral press like what the, the most Jeff Jarrett moment we've had in a run of Jeff Jarrett moments in this incredible like late career bloom that he's having the highlight of a tag match that gets much worse on second viewing I have to say like I'm sorry I'll pop two like I love Orange Cassidy and Dan Housen and not just because of the matching gear like seeing um Orange Cassidy and his Ghostbusters 2 awake it did stuff to me by the way oh my god but like they were great um you did a lot here, including minimizing the impact of the acclaimed to uh, make the guns, like, get away with it. So you shouldn't have put the belts on them in the first place. If you have to do all of these things to help the guns get away with it, six other guys, a bunch of spots that don't really involve them, 
then you probably just shouldn't have made the move. The entire purpose of all of this was to not have FTR go over the acclaimed for the belts yep. in case it harmed their popularity, in case people resented them for, oh, you've taken the belts off the acclaimed. But then again, like, I'm a grown... This audience is a millennial audience. Mm. Isn't, you don't need to insult their intelligence. Mm. You don't need a transitional champion, I don't think. They had, I, in the palm of their hands with that dusty finish with Triple J, the crime of the century when Jarrett and Lethal thought they'd got it done and Jarrett went to snatch that belt. And imagine them being the transitional guys immediately to FTR to then do FTR acclaim too. If you, you know, there's a lot, basically there's a lot of ways to do what AEW have done and do it better. And I think this match was evidence of that. The over people were not the champions. The champions were there to be elevated by the over people and the fact that they were holding the belts and this did not work. The guns are not, a categorically so not it that in hindsight, I'm quite glad that FTR weren't in the match, nor Sting and Darby Allen, because they would have been, if, if your goal was to have the guns win to do the FTR bit afterwards, you've minimized hotter acts. And it kind of makes sense now why... Basically, it makes sense why Dan Housen and Orange Cassidy went in. But in putting Orange Cassidy and Dan Housen in, you also kind of spoiled two weeks of Battle Royals on television. Yeah. Loads of L's taken mm-hmm. here yeah. for, like, a couple of nice comedy spots. The pockets strut was... It was amazing. Perfect. Everyone Jeff Jarrett is interacting with, all my biases aside, is fantastic. Satnam Singh continues to be used to absolute perfection. Sanjay Dutt deserves more flowers than he's getting, in my opinion. Yeah, Lethal's a workhorse of the group. Every group needs one. Like, there was a lot of good to like here, but none of it was the stuff that mattered. It was fluff good. Ah, uh, it was fluff good. It's one of those things where, on the night, in isolation, perfectly slotted, light relief, some things that just pop my tits off, and Danhausen's suplex barrage just remains <laughs> amazing to me. So good. The ends do not justify the means here whatsoever. The ends are... Oh, a nice breezy 12 minutes. And I love the device. The second wind semi-main, as I like to call it. He started off with a Darby Allen sting, private party, like some kind of match. I think it was Revolution last year. Go on, Revolution 2022 for us, please. I think it was a trios with Hardy. Darby Allen, Sammy Guevara, and Sting versus the Hardy Andrade Hardy family office. And that was the semi-main where you thought that's yeah. a long, daunting mm-hmm. card. And it was after the dog collar, was it? It was after Moxley Danielson. Uh, yeah, the dog collar. That, that was before Anarchy in the Arena. And you're like, wow, this is chaos. Yeah. Like, and then it redefined and then Anarchy chaos, in the Arena yeah. was even better. So it's kind of been forgotten. But yeah. yeah, but it was like, right, you just need that second win semi main. If there's just so much ridiculous high octane action densely clustered that you can't not be up for it. And it just, it's a caffeine shot. Three months of undermining the credibility of your tag team titles to do that when you could have simply, for example, had Sting and Darby Allen go over Smart Mark Sterling, Tony Nice, and uh, Josh Woods or something. You could have had Sting and Darby do the balcony dive, do Darby doing Darby stuff for 10 minutes. You, you didn't need to bury your tag division for three months, but it was fun enough, and I needed it. How do you feel about, because uh, I was told uh, that they were gone. Uh, how do you feel about FTR coming back and uh, Dax Harwood getting busted open? Um, I want to call it right. You know, there was the summer of punk. Mm-hmm. This is the winter of Dax. And it was <laughs> absolutely so boring. Like The winter I, of Dax content. Yeah. Dax just, content. Just <laughs> the winter of Dax. Like, why, like, heal the promotion, 
turns some people, your fans, against a promotion that you're not happy with. You're, oh, you've just signed a long-term deal. And it was the anti-first dance. And none of it matters. It's all Twitter bubble stuff. They've got a massive pop. They will continue to get massive pops. I think they will do an amazing baby face run in which they'll continue to stay over. But if you are on Twitter, it's just so impossible to like Dax Howard. <laughs> it's, he's just, I don't know what he's playing at. I, I don't think he does. I don't think he does either. He's either a child or, is, or he thinks it's somehow intriguing to have people think he's a child. <laughs> It's a weird time to... Such a mark for himself. It's a, it's a really strange time. Like, I'm higher on Dax and probably FDR than you are, but, like, it's a strange time to... The Pinnacle podcast, he's got a great mind for the business. Yeah, Aye, that's a definitely a recommended listen after you've listened to every single one in our feed. Mm. Like, the, it's a strange time to be trying to do this, like, work shoot, what's, what's going on with uh, FDR? Because your year of endless critical acclaim was the talking point. Yeah. And instead, you made the talking point. Like, we were talking, we were fantasy booking in the office. I wonder where FCR, what they'll do in April. But we weren't doing that because of, like, mystery eyeball emojis. We were doing it because, oh, my God, they've had the best year of any tag yeah. team in ages. That's why it's interesting. That's why contract season is interesting. So it's Young Bucks in 2021, so not ages. Of like, <laughs> <laughs> like, where are they going to go? Because unlike the Young Bucks, there feels a good chance they could go to WWE. Yeah. And that's a, a really interesting conversation while they're in the form they're in. And instead it became one about ruined it. about cynicism. And like this is not my take, but I've seen it on there. Because there's been quite a few people over the last 18 months doing their AW sucks ass bit. Like, that's a dangerous theme. Sorry for a heel, I guess. Not for a baby face. No. Eddie Kingston's doing it right now. Before we uh, move on to the main event, I suppose this sort of factors in as well to the main event. What's the name of FTR's new T-shirt? Uh, so, did you see this? Itch? I saw it. Yeah. This, yeah. So, it's all rainbow. <laughs> rainbow FTR logos everywhere. And it says, uh, live in colour. And written down, live in colour. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. Punk was all over the show, by yes. the way. So what, like, he was there. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Uh, let's talk main event then. The uh, Ironman match, the AW World Championship. MJF defeating Brian Danielson 4-3 in sudden death OT. Uh, I'll run through the... Score and how we got there, and I'll get your thoughts on it, Sige. So Danielson went 2 0 up. He got a pinfall after 25 minutes after a Busaiku knee, uh, and then went 2 0 up due to a disqualification. MJF hit him with a low blow. Right on Wikipedia, that says uh, MJF disqualified after he attacked Danielson with a low blow. That's 26 35. 26 43, MJF pins Danielson with a roll up. 26 46, MJF pins Danielson again uh, to take it to 2 2. Uh, 40 minutes and 30 seconds, MJF pinned Danielson after a heat seeker. 49 minutes and 20 seconds, Danielson submitted MJF with a regal stretch. And in overtime, MJF, clean as a sheet, uh, submitted Danielson, sort of. I mean, he's just out cold, basically, uh, via LaBelle Lock to retain the AWL championship. He did all of his stuff in the, uh, in the press conference. There was punk references that I'm sure we'll get into uh, as well. And uh, my favourite bit was, of course, when he did the yes, yes, yes for Brian Danielson, then the wanker symbol, because I've been campaigning for this for weeks. <laughs> uh, but Sige, best Ironman match ever? Unquestionably, unquestionably. This was absolutely amazing. I slapped the five on it. Will Dave? No. I've read, I've listened to Observer Radio. Ooh. I think he will. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Think my gut will. feeling right after the match was no. Has he called him out? No, but I did say that. Four and three, I think he'll go. But maybe not. I haven't listened. You're good at picking up Dave's. What is it that, like, he kind of, like, he clues you in in he's his reviews? Is there certain adjectives? Uh, Sorry, 
if Dave says phenomenal five match of the year candidate sometimes it's weird though yeah uh you know in any of the other year this would be match of the year he was talking about um volador jr versus rocky romero from cmll really fun match nothing groundbreaking at all just a uh, pretty you know not generic but of the time modern style lucha inspired obviously match is that would have been match of the year if it wasn't for omega osprey so i was going five on there no four and three what edge minimum four yeah <laughs> um he said it was absolutely incredible and the best Iron Man match ever. Oh. But in his tone, I know he's a bit like, I don't know, he might have been tired. He might have been tired because he was tired. Um, this match was absolutely incredible. The best Iron Man match I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. I don't really, it's one of those things. I love the idea of the stipulation. I just don't think it's ever been explored to its full potential. Just on the Iron Man match generally, and I'll try not to, it's a lot to get through here. I hate the idea of oh, only the last five minutes count. Well, not really. I can celebrate a goal in a 90-minute football match after 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I don't have to wait until the last five minutes to be sure of what the result's probably going to be for me to emotionally invest. Mm -hmm. I think it's such a stupid... People say that because Brett and Sean knackered the first high yeah. goal for one. That's yeah. why. Right. I think it's the idea that an Ironman match is a bad, inherently bad stipulation is a non-sports numbnuts take. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love Kenny Omega in 2021, man. I absolutely Bang love cock, it. Bang cock, baby. These non-sports, non-nuts people. And this match is absolutely unbelievable. Bret Hart, we say this all the time. It's one of our my and Hamlet's favorite anecdotes. It's from the autobiography when he's just talking about the Iron Man match. He takes a second to reflect on how it's all going, looks at the clock, and to the very second, the match is unfolding as he had it in his head. Good. Wish you'd unfolded more entertaining match. Yes. <laughs> 59 minutes into the 60-minute Iron Man match, they were getting fight forever chance. When they weren't fighting, they were selling. That's genius. That is genius. And the clock was red at that time. Yes. They were selling. <laughs> they weren't fighting, but they were so into the struggle, the selling, the drama, the purity of the action that they just wanted it to go on forever. And they'd already watched 59 minutes of eight. I Unbelievable. The last 20 minutes needed the first 40. It's like the Okada thing. People go, oh, the last 50 minutes of Okada matches are great, but do they need to go 40 minutes? Well, yes. Yes, they do. This needed the world building of the 40 because the idea, and it was such an absolutely unbelievable thread, was that MGF had exhausted literally everything and he was done. He was done. In a match that felt predictable on paper because they've built the next year of storylines around mm -hmm. him in the main event. He's not losing his first pay-per-view title defense, except he is because I'm watching it and he can't win. He cannot win. His tank has been drained. His, for whatever code of honor an MGF could possibly have, he has one in that he doesn't want to get dropped on his head. He doesn't even like to dump people. He does dump people on the heads. But basically, he doesn't do anything that is going to cause him injury because he's smart and he works smart and not harder. So when he's crashing himself through tables and all the rest of it, it was like he was a desperate man. And then that wonderful shot that conveyed through in-ring storytelling alone the dynamic. MGF sweat-soaked, exhausted, in tears that everything he's tried has just not worked. Danielson smiling at the same time because he's like, I'll do another three hours for fun and I'm beating you. Immaculate. Because you're thinking, how? Mm. This is the all-important question. It's not a question of if, and really it never was, but that's fine. It can't be if it's not Vince Russo's time anymore. It has to be how. How is he going to win? Because it seems impossible. They expertly constructed this. 
with the idea being that he's just drained his tank, he's done all this stuff. The last 10 minutes of this, informed by the first 40, 50, like nerve-shredding tension on that match for the last 10 minutes. It was unbelievable. These fans were going ballistic for it. And the, I understand, right, that uh, the most cringeworthy thing now on Twitter is cinema. Mm. Oh, cinema. I, I hate it, right, so much. But on a plotting basis, in terms of how things are plotted, this was not unlike a very great Breaking Bad show because you know there's two seasons left and, uh, like, you know, Walter White, Heisenberg, he can't die because there's two seasons left. Mm -hmm. But there are episodes in season four where you're thinking, that's it. He is how is he going to get out of this? I don't know. It's impossible. And then there's some incredible genius twist like that. Oh, God, he got saved because of this. The genius of this, right, was the pacing was unbelievable and all the rest of it. The twist was the way he got away with it wasn't introduced in the 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. It came after the 60 minutes with the gas tank. That's plotting to an absurdly genius degree. Although it was because... And Taz pointed this out on the second watch, which I didn't pick up. Yeah, the constant need for water was showing that, as we knew in kayfabe. I mean, in reality, look at him, Jesus Christ, he's good to go. But in kayfabe, the reality was MJF cannot do this. Yeah. Match. So, like, it stands to reason that logically, as the heel, he would plant bottles of water all around the ring to have in ten minute bursts. But then that man needs gas and air to to stay alive after sixty minutes. <laughs> you didn't know, but this. you didn't know the water was for that. And yeah. like that detail, that's AW. That's AW. That's AW. That's MJF as well. Yeah. That is MJF. Various moments in this match were just incredible to make it feel realistic. One of my favorite things is when a plunder spot is set up as if a narrative, a strategic opportunity has simply presented itself to a wrestler. And it's the opposite of assembly. It's the opposite of contrived. The jumping, running tombstone oh through the remnants of a table. Oh, my God. Because the table had already been broken and it was there to break again. Your opponent's head through it. Oh my god. The last 20 minutes were among the best 20 minutes I've ever watched in professional wrestling. It was just nerve shredding drama. And they're both geniuses. And this was unbelievable. I said this to you on Monday, I think it was. Uh, Noah, my allegiance is lying in this match. And there was even a bit of me going, well, if you want Brian Daniels to win, don't count down the last minute because MJF can't yeah, see yeah, that yeah. clock. So he's going, I don't know how long I've got to hold out in this move. But if you're going, 48, 47, he's gone, right, I've got 47. Can I try and not, you know, it might, he talked about it in the press conference, didn't he, as the meniscus in his MCL yeah. that he tore playing football or whatever it was. One minor criticism, I think that they should have periodically flashed the clock on the screens in the arena mm. because I was worried, even though they did that at home and you knew they were going to keep it on for the last 10-5, it was five in the end. I th think... Then again, the audience were just red hot throughout. They yeah. didn't seem anxious that they couldn't track it. So maybe I was just feeling anxiety on their behalf. But no, this is a Breaking Bad plotted in-ring masterpiece that was paced to perfection, that escalated the tone and the style and the tension and the drama. This is absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know, Brian Danielson's a very good wrestler. MJ's a very good wrestler. I just Pass want that on. Yeah. <laughs> I 
I want to put over Bryce Remsburg. I thought he had one of the best lines of the night. We haven't even got to, to your thoughts on Tony Schiavone. Oh, in a God. Second. And I'm sorry, I'll let Hamford speak first. Um, what was it? He said something like, use it and you'll use lose it. Use it and you'll lose it, yeah. I thought that was a brilliant line. To, to go on, then. In with the belt. In with the. Go, I'll let you. I'll let you because then I'll DQ you and it's all over and your nightmarish reign as world champion. His words. Yeah. His thoughts, not mine, obviously. Um, it's over. I thought that was a really genuinely great piece of work from, from Bryce. The uh, For all the, uh, the difficulty of assembling a good Ironman match, because it's 60 minutes and you've theoretically both got to take falls, so you're pinning and submitting people when in a normal match you only have to do that once and only one person has to like suffer the consequence of defeat. It is a hard match to get right, um, as Brett and Sean proved and others have proven. But really, one of the, I think something that people miss when they think about how only the last minute is exciting, it's a bad take that, is that in a, in a good Ironman match, the last 10 minutes feel like two. Because no, a 10-minute match, right? If it's, if it's a boring 10-minute match, it feels like it goes on forever. How, how long was Wardlow, Joe? About 10 minutes, I think. Right, so like, yeah, compare that 10 minutes to comparing the last 10 minutes to Danielson and MJF. That flew by in like a minute because at this point... You don't want it to end. You don't want it to end, and it's one-sixth of what you've already watched, and it's like, it feels like nothing, does it? It's like, well, 10 minutes is the home straight. It's the whole thing in the undercard. So it, it's a totally different context when done correctly, and this was obviously done immaculately well I'm with Cedric. I think I was like hovering on my first watch, now I've confirmed it on my second. It's my favourite Ironman match ever, and I think it will go down as the best until it's topped. Um, and Brian might want to over 90 minutes or two <laughs> hours or whatever it is that he wants to do next. Um, but yeah, Danielson it, could wrestle for an entire episode of Dynamite. I, I, wouldn't, get that, bored. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. get bored. I'd like to see it. Uh, it wasn't at all boring or stalling or like, especially in the, the parts of the match where it could have been, which I would say would have been the opening 10 minutes where they do as little as possible, like smoke and mirror stuff to save their energy or around the 45 minute mark where they're just absolutely goosed. You, those were the two key points where you yeah. could have had a lot of laying down or a lot of skipping about when you got neither. Good little moments for Heat with MJF and good character moments for Danielson, but never lazily running down the clock, which was crucial, I think, to this not feeling fake. Mm. Uh, like, the one thing I will say, because I, like, Sidgwick's going to put over Shivani better than I will. I, I didn't dislike it. It's not just because I predicted it. I would have quite liked the draw as the ending. I think it would have been really in character with MJF. And I wonder a little bit, maybe they'll labour on this, and it's the main event story in AEW, it's the top programme, MJF's the most important character to nurture, you take the most care with your champion. Uh, did this a little bit stretch that premise of everybody hates this prick? That Bryce Remsburg wants him to get disqualified because he's sick of him holding the title. Everybody wants sudden death over time, even though it wasn't uh, talked about beforehand. MJF signed, you know, in kayfabe, signed a contract to wrestle 60 minutes, mm-hmm. and now you're making him go 65. Like, he's won, and he can have the last word, and he's done it through cheating, but could he not argue that the system cheated him first? And Danielson taking a gas canister to the head was deserved because who the hell's Tony Khan to make him keep wrestling when he's done his job for the night? You know, like, that's... I love the... From the very first time that Cody was permitted one shot with the belt, love that idea. But I wonder how... If that stretched out to the point where MJF could realistically start saying, look, everyone's against me, and he's right. And you cannot have this heel with all of his million ridiculous origin stories actually have... Actually be correct about this. But he's such an arsehole. He is. He is. It it does work with that character, but I don't know. It stretched it for me a little bit. I want to end on a high note, so I want to end with your thoughts on Shivani. Just a quick thing about the stuff on the internet about the kid and the drink and and, and all that. What did you make of it all? I've got very few thoughts. 
I got very few thoughts, and I think the the discourse. I hate that word. I hate the word storytelling. I hate the word frigging Twitter. There's a conversation. <laughs> the worst thing is like it's, it's Twitter is its own worst enemy because there absolutely is a conversation to be had around the ethics or the point, the wisdom of that spot. But it becomes a race for engagement from people who pretend they're operating in good faith. It becomes an excuse to ruin genuinely a magical professional wrestling match because they don't like AEW. And it just basically underscores to me that no one should talk to any strangers ever. Like, it, this, can't, <laughs> this can't end well. Everyone's got agendas. And I just don't care enough to say about it. In that moment... He had a choice to make as a heel. He uh, probably got a great time after. It wasn't a cool thing to do. Um, But maybe what you could have done is just like pretend to offer it to the kid and then just poured it Mm. away from him. But you're in the moment. Mm -hmm. You're in heel character. It is fundamentally important to MGF to be the one guy you can believe in. It's just this absolute scum of the earth arsehole, 24-7, who's never that, who's never not Mm. an arsehole. He had a choice to make in the moment. He made it, and it got made up for. It's a non-issue after that. That's the thing as well, that they made up for it as well. And and I don't want to, we can go into a bigger thing, and I don't want to talk to to go into it, but I thought it was a bit disingenuous of people because the whole thing about the the Lacey Evans thing a few months back, right? I kind of set my stall out with that of, I don't think she's targeting that child. I mm. think she's playing this heel character and seen this 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 kid and gone, well, why would I treat them any different to anyone else? So I'm going to be a heel. That Putting aside all the stuff we know about her as a person rather than a wrestling character, I just felt it was a bit disingenuous of people to be like, yeah, yeah, that's just Lacey Evans playing a heel. And then going, oh, well, hang on, Maxwell. Look how upset that kid was. It's like, like you say, he's, it's not like he's... He's MJF on TV if and then it's signing. Well, like, he thanks does so it like he aims for like, his feet. Yeah. It's yeah. not going right in your face. Exactly. He's trying to get the best of both worlds out of that and have his cake and eat it. He could have just done nothing, but then the second that this facade breaks, he loses this credibility and he's been working for years at it. People don't always like it when we talk about people talking about wrestling. They'd rather just talk about the wrestling. But I do think, to Sidge's point, there's an important element that I felt was missed by the people that were pretending to care about this. Right? <laughs> yeah. Small picture, MJF does a thing. Loads of people think it was wrong. Some people think it was right, whatever. Bigger picture, MJF does a thing long before anybody on the internet has time to make their mind up about if this was terrible or awesome because they've all just gone back to watching the Iron Man match, by the way. AW sends uh, Amanda Huber out there to make right what is potentially a wrong. Uh, the kid and the mom go backstage have a great time, have a great night. Tony Khan, bollocks, MJF for real. Before the press conference, I think it was. That's the timeline of events, if I'm not mistaken. Away from doing it in front of the scrum, which we know now to be these like quasi kayfabe, weird hybrid things. Terrible things. So, (laughs) yeah. So the next... I like the way MJF said, oh, pickle. (laughs) Sounded almost sweet. So the next day, those people getting really wound up about that have elected to not look at a company handling it. Yeah. I was Regar- so regardless of what people like the company thought about it, they handled it as if it was a bad thing. So when I woke up on like Monday afternoon or whatever it was, and there was all this furor, and I was like, we did that on our end finally for the news we filmed immediately after the pay per view. Yeah, I, I just think that, like, even if what if like the company had done all that 
And then unanimously the next day was like, that was awesome from MJF. Like, then the company had acted completely in good faith to make right a potential wrong that didn't even end up being a wrong. And there was no, to me, there was no, people I just think we defend AEW, so I don't know why I'm bothering with this. But it just sort of felt to me like people haven't even sort of suggested, hey, AEW's an organi- organization did exactly what was right here and maybe MJF will learn from it. Mm. And like, even in, in the moment stuff, even then you'll think about what an in the moment right yeah. and wrong is. I just, I was surprised that that had escalated in the way mm. it did, but then maybe I shouldn't have been surprised. Yeah. Uh, let's conclude then by talking about that bloody arsehole Shivani and how happy he was. Uh, yeah, it's just great. In October 2019, Tony Shivani instantly just knew what MJF was because <laughs> he's a respected broadcaster and MJF was being an arsehole on some dynamite or other, maybe the very first one. He's like, MJF's a prick. <laughs> <laughs> and ever since they've had this feud, this on-off feud. It's like, oh, it's, it's so amazing to be here and be back in the business apart from this one guy. Yeah. Like, yeah. Everything yeah. is great. Yeah, that, was it Pando time when he was Pando young? time. Um, MJF has a match with Mark Olston to head of Double or Nothing, where he's having a match with then Jurassic Express stable mate Mark Olston. Uh, Jungle Boy, he has the match with Mark Olston to build to it. Gets him by the turnbuckle. And MJF shouts, Hey, Shivani, you fat prick. <laughs> Tell Jungle Boy this is what's coming to him at Double or Nothing. Hey, Shivani, you fat prick. He's thrown him over. He's assaulted, to your yes. point, yeah. about is it getting to a point where AEW's disproportionate reactions to MGF justify his... Like, MGF has assaulted Tony Schiavone, yeah. like a near senior citizen on live television. Tony Schiavone is well within his rights to get a little bit giddy, and it was so perfect because you don't have to tell stories in their stories. Quote Bruce Pritchard. In this, like, uh, a certain fixed amount of time, this block where you talk to each other on a microphone and threaten each other. Like, sometimes a story can be this lovely little indirect thing that just surfaces every now and then, informs amazing moments like this and its very existence, how it's just cultivated like a, like a garden, just makes the actual world feel that more realistic. And that's the difference between AEW and the Fed because the power is back. Follow me at M. Sidgwick. Talked a lot about cinema and who deserves Oscars. I think Tony Schiavone deserves an Oscar because I have seen in films and television other side of the phone call acting not as good as Tony Schiavone putting over what you imagine it would be like to speak to Tony Khan. It's got the message in the first two seconds, then you can see him going, uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. And you just, you picture Tony Khan, and it's like, <laughs> we're going to sort of death, we're doing it, Tony Khan, right, I get, I get the point. And I think it's going to go nine minutes. <laughs> <laughs> the giddiness. Yeah. Ah, great. Uh, right, let us know your thoughts uh, on AEW Revolution. At what culture WWE on Twitter? Actually, you can follow all three of us. You can follow Michael Hamflet at... Michael Hamflet. Follow Michael Sidgwick at... M. Sidgwick. Follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at what culture WWE, as I said. Make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling, wherever you get your podcasts from. For daily wrestling podcasts, uh, the NXT Roadblock is, review is available right now. And later, later on today, myself and Dadleys will be back to preview AEW Dynamite. Uh, but for now, this has been the AEW Revolution review. My thanks the Dadly Boys. Thank you for joining us and we will see you soon. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.